This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Jenna Jordan, author of Leadership Decapitation, Strategic Targeting of Terrorist Organizations. Dr. Jenna Jordan is Associate Professor of International Affairs at the Georgia Institute of Technology. She received her PhD in political science from the University of Chicago and master's in political science from Stanford University. She previously held a postdoctoral research fellowship at the Harris School of Public Policy Studies at the University of Chicago. Her research interests include terrorism, population transfers, attachment to territory, international security, cybersecurity, and wargaming. Jenna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start off and ask you if you could tell us a little bit about how this book came about. I started my PhD in 2001, so just after the attacks of 9-11. And I actually didn't think I was going to be a terrorism scholar. Um, I had other plans in mind. And then 9-11 happened, and I started thinking about non-state actors. And um, this was a point where international relations literature tended to be really focused on interstate relationships and what states were doing in the international system. And there was, you know, less but an emerging and really exciting and interesting field in terrorism. And so I got interested in it. And originally, I actually had an entirely different uh, dissertation project. And halfway through, I decided to shift gears. And I started looking at leadership targeting. And part of the reason, it it came out of discussions actually with my dissertation advisor, um, Robert Pape. And we were talking about, you know, some of the policy issues surrounding counterterrorism policy. And, you know, this was assumed to be an effective strategy. You know, after 9-11, there was, you know, a a big effort, obviously, to target bin Laden. And the assumption was that this was going to be a really major attack on the organization and bring about the group's demise. And in fact, that didn't happen. And so then I started going back and looking at what people were saying about targeting terrorist leaders since, you know, the 60s and 70s and 80s. And there was this assumption that this was going to work and bring about the demise of groups. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And so I thought, well, I want to try to understand when it works, when it doesn't work, and why. And so that's really how this book came about. And the book opens with a really fast-paced account of the raid on bin Laden and taking him out as the as the leader of Al-Qaeda, which may be the most well-known examples of leader decapitation. Can you talk about that raid and how you use that to set the stage for the book? I was sort of obviously more interested in the, the aftermath of the raid and what happened to the organization afterwards. But I feel like it's important for people to get a sense of what actually happens in these individual cases. And, and, it's an, and it's an interesting case. And I think part of it is that the international community was so focused on getting bin Laden. And, and of course, I mean, it was, um, it was certainly a tactical victory. This was a man who had resulted in the loss of lots and lots and lots of lives. And so people felt invested. And in fact, after bin Laden was killed, People were cheering in the streets. They were outside of the White House cheering and excited for for his death. And so I felt that talking a little bit about 
that raid and the details of it to bring people back to that time um, when that happened and, and just to kind of provide some grounding, grounding for the story. So that's why I, I included that particular um, incident in the book. But really, the book is, is, is about what happens afterwards. And that's the focus of it. You've looked at a lot of different cases to draw your conclusions and find these trends. Can you talk a little bit about your methodology and how you went about looking at leadership decapitation in terrorist organizations? Yeah, so I started looking at it kind of anecdotally and looking back at, you know, some of these key instances in which leaders were killed. So obviously bin Laden in 2011 was a big one. But then even prior to that, there were some really hugely influential instances of leaders being targeted. And the, and those are often referenced when people talked about decapitation. So, you know, for example, the leaders of Hamas, Sheikh Yassin, uh, who was killed in uh, 2004, and Rantisi, who were both leaders of Hamas, Yassin being a more of a spiritual leader and founder of the organization, and Rantisi was more of a, a political leader and founder, also killed in 2004. Or thinking back to Guzman, who was the leader of Shining Path, who I talked about in the book some, who was captured in 1992 in Lima by Peruvian authorities. And, and actually, his case was, was kind of interesting in that after he was arrested, these images of him in a tiger cage and striped prison attire were widely broadcasted. And this was really seen as a sort of demoralizing and humiliating blow, not only to Guzman, but to the organization as well. And this, this event was seen as the beginning of the decline of Shining Path. Or Abdullah Ocalan, who was the leader of the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, he was arrested in Kenya in 1999 and sentenced to life imprisonment. And in fact, he actually called upon his followers after his arrest to lay down their arms and he called for a renunciation of violence. But interestingly, in all of these cases that are seen as these huge victories in you know, counterterrorism efforts, and, and particularly in the case of Guzman and Ocalan is seen as directly really, you know, leading to the, the downfall of organizations, the group still continued to carry out activity. And they were weakened, certainly, but they were still active. And so those were some of the kind of initial anecdotes that I thought, well, these are really interesting. You know, these are, these are such profound and, and highly publicized events that were seen as, as directly responsible for a group's decline. So I thought, well, I want to understand if that is in fact the case. So I started putting together a data set and I just started collecting data and going through just open source, basically looking, you know, starting with books and looking in newspapers, using LexisNexis, all open source, different means to, to you know, different p- ways to, to gather data and just putting together a list of uh, leaders that have been killed or arrested from 1970 to the present. And that was really how I started doing it. And, and then I had, you know, some really awesome research assistants to help me <laughs> through the process as, as the data collection kept going. But that's how it started, was just putting together a data set. And this data set, it ended up being around, what was it, 1,300 cases or so of leadership targets? Yeah. So the the data that I actually use to analyze for the statistical results is about 1,000 cases. um, And that goes from 1970 to 2012. But then I have another three to 400 cases that are from 2012 to 20, well, really 2017, 2018, that are focused primarily on Al-Qaeda and ISIS. 
So yeah, all, all told, probably about 13 to 1400 instances. And each of those, you know, I looked at whether or not the leader was arrested or killed, and then went through and tried to gather data on the organization itself. And so what I was really interested in is, is the organizational aspect of you know, organizational dynamics of the groups being targeted. Um, what was their size? What was the age of the organization at the time when the leader was killed or arrested? You know, what, where in the sort of hierarchy the leader was placed? And then looking at different measures of efficacy um, and sort of trying to decide how, um, how, how you determine whether or not it does work or doesn't work. And that's a that was a whole sort of separate beast. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, how do you decide that a leadership decapitation has been effective? How do you measure what impact that has on an organization? Yeah, so I think that was probably the biggest challenge that I faced in putting this project together. You know, there's so many different ways that you can think about whether or not an organization or whether or not a counterterrorism policy just in general is effective. And and we think to policymakers talking about what we're doing with our counterterrorism policies. Well, we're trying to weaken or degrade or, you know, at the most extreme level, ultimately defeat a terrorist organization. And so what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of different ways you could think about it. You know, you could think about an organization experiencing some kind of internal, uh, you know, friction and perhaps uh, splintering and factionalizing in some case, which is actually another project I'd like to look at down the line. Um, but you can also think about, you know, at a very basic level, the numbers of attacks that a group carries out, how frequent the attacks are, um, how deadly they are, or how many injuries they bring about. You can also, you know, look at whether or not the type of target that the organization is um, going after, do they tend to be targeting more hard targets or soft targets for the, the actual state that they're trying to wage their campaign against? And so there's a lot of different ways you could look at it. So I decided to focus on basically three different factors. One is organizational activity. One is the frequency of attacks, and then also looking at the overall survival rate, so the lifespan of the organization. And does targeting increase a group's lifespan? Does it decrease a group's lifespan? Does it have no effect? So those are the three measures. But then even in terms of looking at the frequency of attacks, there are some other issues to kind of think about, which is what is the time period in which you're going to look? So when I initially started, I was thinking about policy recommendations for the book. Um, obviously, I'm interested in theoretical development, but I'm really interested in the policy implications, given that this is a, a, a project that really grew out of thinking about counterterrorism policy specifically. And you know, the State Department redesignates terrorist organizations every two years. So I thought, okay, well, maybe that's a good measure. We can think about two years of inactivity as being a measure of success. So that's when a instance of decapitation would be seen as a success. Well, initially I took a little bit of flack and people said, well, that's actually a pretty, uh, you know, uh, rigid measure, two years of inactivity. Um, you know, if you're a policymaker and you're thinking about how are you going to fight a terrorist organization? Well, maybe if you see a decline in attacks, maybe that's a measure of success. Or maybe if you see no attacks for a year and then a resumption um, after that, well, maybe that's still a success. 
So for the book, I really kind of tried to broaden the way in which I measured efficacy. So I looked at whether or not it caused a decline in activity one year after an instance of decapitation and two years and five years. I looked at the survival rate and then I looked at the frequency of attacks given different variables kind of over time as well. So those were the three things I looked at. You found that some organizations are more likely to be weakened by the targeting of their leaders than others. Yes, Can you talk about your theory of organizational resilience and some of your findings on this? Yeah, definitely. So I'll talk a little bit first about the theory of organizational resilience. And this this basically was an attempt to get at the why question. So why does decapitation work in some cases and why does it work in others? And then the data is more of the kind of when. I initially started with looking at what people were saying at the time about leadership. And there was kind of, I would say, sort of one main argument people made about this was charisma, that the ability of a leader to a leader's removal, whether they were arrested or killed to result in the destabilization of an organization had to do with how charismatic they were. And, you know, this goes back to thinking about understanding um, different forms of authority. So I went back to Max Weber, who writes about different bases of authority. And one of them is this, you know, and these are, of course, ideal types, but I, I think they're useful and interesting. And so one of them was this idea of charisma, right? And that charisma is something unique um, and some kind of special, uh, extraordinary quality about an individual that makes them like irreplaceable, um, that gives them some kind of, you know, special powers in some way that that makes them irreplaceable uh, and makes them really unique. And 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 it's almost that, you know, we, we hear it now, people talk about the cult of personality. It's not quite the same thing, but I think it's kind of as a similar kind of sentiment. But my problem with that explanation was that, well, people seem to imply that almost all leaders of terrorist organizations had this kind of charismatic quality. But the problem is decapitation works in some some cases and it doesn't in others. And, And what I found was even more interesting is that religious organizations actually tended to be very resilient and very um, harder to destabilize. And you almost think in the cases of religious organizations that you'd have these leaders that would tend to be more charismatic. So I thought, okay, I don't, I don't think this explanation is sufficient. I think we need something else. So I looked at three main variables that I think become important to understand when a leader's removal is likely to bring about a, a, some kind of demise or weakening of an organization. So the first thing I look at is organizational structure. And what I argue here is that, and I know it's, it sounds awkward to think about terrorist groups as being bureaucratized, but we can think about it that way. And so what I found is that groups that tend to be bureaucratized um, or have some kind of bureaucratic forms of authority, particularly at the upper levels of the administration, tend to be much harder to destabilize. And so we can think about bureaucracies as um, organizations that have clear standard operating procedures and a division of, uh, of labor and authority, a hierarchy of authority, specialization. You can think about you know, organizations that have a, a political wing and a social service wing and a military wing and a and propaganda wing, you know, you can kind of think about an organization that way as being sort of bureaucratic or, or even as, as an interesting example, you know, in the aftermath of the Bin Laden raid, a lot of documents were captured that painted the picture of an organization that was highly bureaucratized and that they had, 
you know, rosters of memberships and how many, how much people were paid and people had to submit reports and memos for time off. And, you know, what these sort of what you think of as, as operating like a bureaucracy in many ways. So that's the first variable. And, and, and one thing I think that's also important to mention is that groups that tend to be bureaucratic at their upper levels of the organization and then operationally decentralized tend to be exceedingly resilient. And so we see this in the case of Al-Qaeda, certainly. People often talk about, you know, the difficulty of, decent- of fighting a decentralized organization. You know, people often use the word network, but I think we can say, you know, decentral- decentralized network. And that you've got groups that are operating in, in little cells and obviously communication is limited because it makes it easier to target and, and, and infiltrate these, these particular networks. And so it's this combination of these two things, I think, that really can make a group um, very difficult to destabilize. And we see this in many cases. And so that's the first factor. So the second factor that I think is important for understanding when leadership decapitation is likely to be effective or not is communal support. And communal support is just what groups need to function. You know, groups need things like resources and safe houses and passports and things that they need to just operate as a clandestine organization. And so terrorist groups that have, and actually at a base level, just for recruits, right? That's kind of like the main thing that organizations need is people to replace people and people who've been killed and to, you know, bolster their ranks. You know, the most effective organizations that we've seen have been able to get a lot of people. Now, granted, obviously, you know, in some cases, this support is highly coerced. But in other cases, the organization is seen as representing the beliefs and interests of a particular group. This is particularly salient when you're thinking about separatist organizations, right, that are are coming out of communities where they are representing or trying to represent the interests of a particular group seeking autonomy or seeking independence. Um, Or you could think about religious organizations that emerge from particular communities where they're seen as representing the religious beliefs of a significant portion or even a significant minority of, of a particular population, which can still give them access to a lot of support. So that's the second factor. And the third factor I look at is um, ideology. And so as I just mentioned, thinking about separatist organizations and religious organizations, as the, as the groups tend to often represent the particular views of those, those types of organizations and the communities from which, which they emerge, at the same time, when you think about leadership, people often think about leaders as being critical for the provision of a particular ideology upon which a group is based. And and that is true in certain cases, right? Certain leaders had a particular interpretation of Marxism, for instance, or a particular religious interpretation that was unique to that particular person in some way. And so their vision or their doctrine was necessary to guide the organization. But in many cases, the way in which uh, the ideological orientation of the group evolves is such that it's no longer dependent upon a particular leader for its rearticulation. And actually, thinking about Al-Qaeda, for instance, Bin Laden was actually very successful at this, right? He made a, a, a conscious effort to really broaden the ideological appeal of the organization such that 
it wasn't dependent upon him for his, its articulation, right? That the ideology really transcended him. And I think that this is the same situation for ISIS as well. I don't think that Baghdadi's death is going to hinder the ideological resonance and the ideological beliefs upon which the organization is based. You might see differences in how uh, a particular leader believes that that ideology should be realized or brought about or actualized in some way, but the ideology itself becomes highly entrenched. And so I think those three factors, groups that are highly bureaucratized and also can be more decentralized at operational levels, that have significant levels of communal support, or that have an ideology upon which their base that's not dependent upon the leader for its articulation, those groups tend to be the most resilient. And actually, in terms of the ideology, what I found is that it's, it's really religious and separatist groups that I think are most likely to be more resilient, whereas left-wing groups like Marxist groups, Leninist groups, right-wing organizations tend to be more dependent upon the leader for their, their, their sort of belief structure. So in those cases, I think leadership decapitation is, is more likely to have an effect. I want to go into the case studies that you looked at and how these three factors interplay. But first, I wanted to ask, I know you your premise is to look at the effectiveness of leadership decapitation. Did you look at any other consequences of leadership decapitation in either the communities that these groups operate or otherwise? I did. I more looked at just the sort of measures of efficacy, which were, you know, numbers of attacks. But even looking at numbers of, of attacks, you can get a sense of, of whether or not these particular instances have counterproductive consequences. And what I found is that leadership decapitation can be counterproductive. And it actually, when I first started this project, that was something that I found most surprising, was that not only is it often not effective, and really against the kinds of organizations that the U.S. was really trying to fight, particularly in you know the kind of post-9-11 world, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and um, other related organizations, some of the affiliate organizations. So not only was it not effective, as we saw, right, I mean, in, you know, even after uh, 9-11, you know, you can see a, a significant increase in attacks carried out by Al-Qaeda in 2012 and 2013, perhaps not by Al-Qaeda core, but Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula became very active. So trying to understand that, um, that counterproductive consequence, I thought was really interesting. But specifically, that got me thinking about the, um, and, and, and actually what I looked at was, was when it was more likely to have a counterproductive consequence. And what I found was that it was consistent with the statistical findings in the book. And so I'll just mention those briefly. Um, and, and they obviously tie back to the, org- the theory of organizational resilience that I mentioned. But what I found was really that large organizations, in some cases, older organizations, and actually that becomes relevant when we talk about counterproductive consequences, but large organizations, religious groups, and actually specifically Islamist groups and separatist organizations tended to be the most resilient. So those were the groups that were hardest to weaken. Those were basically the groups that were more likely to continue carrying out attacks or to experience perhaps a slight destabilization, but then in a resumption of activity. And so those were kind of the key main findings. There were some other statistical results, but those I think were are, are perhaps most relevant for thinking about the counterproductive consequences, the question that you just asked. And what I found is that in those particular cases, that's where we're also likely to see 
a more of a an increase and an uptick in attacks after an instance of decapitation. So you're sort of going to see an increasing trend um, in particular, you know, when you're dealing with religious groups, separatist groups, Islamist groups, and actually in some of these cases, larger groups, and in some of the cases, older groups as well. And the final thing that I think is actually really interesting when thinking about counterproductive consequences is, you know, there's a few other people that have done some really great work um, in this particular area and have done statistical results on this. There's actually a colleague of mine, Brian Price, um, has a book out on targeting as well. And another colleague, Patrick Johnston, have both looked at this topic. And we have different findings, which I think is interesting. And part of it is that we look at different data and we measure things a little bit differently and we measure efficacy a little bit differently. But they actually tend to be more optimistic about the ability of decapitation to bring about a group's decline. And one thing that Brian Price does in his work is he looks at the survival rate of an organization. And we have slightly different results. And what I found is that it doesn't necessarily decrease a group's survival rate. So it doesn't increase the likelihood that the group is going to die, so to speak, or have a, a, a longer lifespan, but it doesn't have much effect. So I think that's a kind of interesting finding um, that really different, differs is that you don't see a group having a shorter lifespan or really a longer lifespan. It doesn't, it, you know, basically doesn't do much um, in terms of overall, you know, reduction in lifespan, but it does have this oftentimes in certain cases have this counterproductive consequence. And I think that's really important to think about. And actually just anecdotally, when you look at organizations that have seen, you know, really significant high level leaders killed, the groups almost invariably carry out attacks in retaliation for the particular leader's death. This was obviously the case with bin Laden. Actually, after the death of Adnani, who was a uh, you know senior leader in ISIS, similar calls were made for retaliatory attacks after his death. Actually, thinking about the case of Islam of uh, Islamic Jihad, there was a very well known bomb maker named Yahya Ayash, and he was seen as a senior leader of the organization. And after his death, there were very brutal suicide attacks that were carried out in retaliation for his targeting. And same thing with. Um, Sheikh Yassin and Rentisi after their deaths. And obviously after Baghdadi, there's been, you know, a speculation that the group is going to attempt to carry out attacks to avenge the particular leader's death. So I think those are important to consider when you're thinking about how effective a particular strategy is. So I want to jump into your case studies. You have three of them. And First, you explain that Hamas leadership has been targeted many times. Uh What factors have led to its continued operations in spite of this? Yeah, Hamas is a unique case in that they really were able to garner a considerable amount of communal support over time. You know, in many cases, uh, and I didn't mention this before when talking about communal support, but one way in which organizations gain more support is by providing services when states are unable to or unwilling to. And so Hamas is is a great example of this in that they provided education and social services and financial resources in some cases, you know, for the families of, of particular suicide bombers and for militants more, you know, broadly. But that provision of services is a huge factor in groups being able to 
to be able to acquire the kind of support that they need to continue functioning, to get a lot of people. Hamas is an interesting case in that in 2006, they were able to win a large number of seats in the Palestinian legislative authority. And that that was a a big signal of uh, the amount of support that Hamas was able to gain in uh, West Bank and in Gaza in both territories. That's, I think, a really exemplary case of of how groups are able to get support. But we saw this in the case of, you know, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And actually, I mean, a lot of the affiliated or affiliated uh, Al-Qaeda groups were able to really take advantage of a lack of a lack of access to, I mean, basic resources and go in and be able to provide them. And in fact, ISIS did something similar as well in um, Iraq and Syria. And so Hamas was really effective at this. Um, But yes, Hamas has has, um, experienced sustained efforts at targeting its leaders. In 1988, Israel was uh, arresting, primarily arresting leaders of terrorist organizations of Hamas and Islamic Jihad and uh, other organizations. And starting in 1993, Israel started killing terrorist leaders. And this was a time in which you saw a real shift in Hamas tactics as well. And I'm not saying there's direct correlation, but it is interesting that terrorist organizations adapt. And they adapt organizationally, they adapt strategically, and they adapt tactically in response to changes in states' counterterrorism policies. And this is certainly true in the case of leadership targeting. In your second case, you call the Shining Path a hard case for this study. Yes. Can you explain why and what you found? Unlike Hamas, which has experienced sustained targeting for a long time and has remained active and strong and has been able to win elections, uh, Shining Path was actually a very different case. I mean, this was an organization that had a totally different ideological orientation. This was a Marxist-Leninist organization that was active in Peru that at one point was, was nearly successful in some ways. It had gained a huge amount of recruits. It was able to operate. It had a lot of resources. It carried out a lot of attacks. And it was able to withstand a lot of uh, attacks on its leadership over time. But in 1992, when Guzman was arrested, the organization experienced a decline. And so this was a hard test for me because it did experience a decline in activity but it then resumed activity. Uh, the group kind of splintered, and there was another faction uh, led by Oscar Durand, who basically assumed the uh, position of leadership of the organization, and he was then targeted successfully in 1999. And at that point, the organization essentially ceased to exist. So it was a hard case because I thought, well, why didn't it work in 1992, and why did it work in 1999? And part of it has to do with the fact that, you know, at the time of Duran's targeting in 1999, the organization had already been weakened. Um, It had lost a lot of its support. It's uh, obviously its numbers, its recruits had gone way down. You know, in the early days of the organization, it had a lot of support in more rural areas. um, And much of this support was coerced. But nonetheless, it was able to operate uh, with a lot of freedom in particular areas in Peru. And they had lost a lot of that by 1999. And so 
you know, and, and, and even kind of looking at the statistical findings, it was also a bit of a challenge because here you have a group that was a large organization, which according to my findings should be quite stable. That said, it was a Marxist-Leninist organization, and it had an ideology that, you know, these left-wing groups tend to be a little bit easier to destabilize. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that the ideology upon which the group is based tends to be so particular to the leader. And in the case of Guzman, he had a very specific, unique take on, you know, Marxist-Leninist thought. And so I think after his capture, that that cohesion, that ideological resonance kind of, you know, it, it declined. And, and the group did factionalize. The group did kind of splinter afterwards. And so then by the time um, 1999 came around, we're dealing with a more kind of uh, weakened, factionalized group that didn't resemble what we would think of as a very strong, resilient organization. And your third case study, turning back to Al-Qaeda, it continues to be a target for decapitation attacks, obviously, including the operation to kill bin Laden, which we talked about briefly. What about Al-Qaeda's structure makes it different? Yes. So Al-Qaeda is a unique case in that Al-Qaeda has become this you know, franchised organization, which I think makes it, first of all, it makes it difficult when you're thinking about analyzing it. Um, are we talking about Al-Qaeda core? Are we looking at each affiliated organization differently? You've got affiliates in the Islamic Maghreb and uh, the Arabian Peninsula and Af- you know, parts of East Africa and um, South Asia. And so, so it makes it difficult when you're thinking about whether you think about it as one organization or many or a larger movement. Um, but that said, the fact that the group is organizationally become so uh, franchised and have these different affiliates, I think really does make the group exceedingly strong. And particularly given that you have this kind of ideological thread running throughout all of the organizations. And, And in fact, after bin Laden was killed and after you saw the decline of Al Qaeda core with, you know, the leadership kind of running every which way in the aftermath you saw the other affiliated groups becoming much more active and um, much stronger. And so you have, you know, a, an organization that is still active and it's still carrying out attacks. And so, you know, part of it has to do with, you know, when you think about, you know, bureaucracy, obviously there's not sort of one overarching bureaucracy over all of Al-Qaeda as a movement, but each of the affiliated organizations themselves have their own organizational structure and they have their own authority structure and they have their own decentralized operational network. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's something much larger than just a organization. Can the same findings for a group like Al-Qaeda be extrapolated to ISIS or is that completely different? So ISIS is a very different entity. ISIS has been able to get access to a considerable amount of uh, resources, both financial, oil fields, right? It was obviously extortion and taking advantage of what was on the ground. And so this enabled the organization to really function like a state. And this is something very different from Al-Qaeda and something very different than what Al-Qaeda was able to achieve. 
That said, just the fact that ISIS wanted to declare a caliphate was an intentional move, and it was an intentional move that al-Qaeda didn't make. You know, obviously, al-Qaeda wanted to have a state, but it made a conscious decision to wait, whereas ISIS made the decision to go ahead when it did. Um, Now, as we've seen, ISIS has lost a huge amount of territory and has been pushed back and continues to be on the, the decline in, in, uh, in, in Iraq and Syria. That said, what I find interesting is that you know the organization has kind of consciously acknowledged this, right? They've acknowledged the fact that they aren't as, as strong as they once were with access to territory and have said, you know, well, we can kind of recede and uh, regroup and come back stronger. And what's interesting is that statements have really emphasized the ideological resonance of the organization. And so I find this really interesting when going back and thinking about, you know, the kind of theory of organizational resilience and the importance of ideology. This is something that ISIS has really relied upon to say, we have this ideology and you might be able to take our territory and our money and our access to whatever, but you certainly aren't going to be able to undermine the ideological resonance of what we're trying to do and our message. And in fact, the group has suggested that instead of operating like a state, right, that had, you know, governance structures and delegation of authority to lower level people running particular areas on the ground, they've said, well, we can, we can kind of fight like an insurgent organization. And so, you know, that goes back to my point about organizational adaptation and how groups are able to um, move on and develop. And, and in this particular case, you can say an organization says, well, if we can't fight like a state, then we can fight like an insurgent organization and still wage a terrifying campaign against a particular target. You know, there's other obviously important differences between ISIS and Al-Qaeda in terms of, you know, who they're targeting, if they're going to be targeting the West more, fighting more regional, local particular struggles. And that really differs depending on the affiliate that you're talking about. But yeah, there's there's definitely um, big differences between uh, the two organizations, and I, I see them as, as as quite distinct, both in how they've operated in their overall goals and in the ideological messaging as well. How has it been? I, I should preface it, that your book came out about the time that al-Baghdadi was killed, and, and you mentioned that a couple of times today. How has that been seeing how that plays out in terms of your findings in the aftermath of that? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. It's kind of like an an experiment that, you know, as a social scientist, you don't get so often, but it it was actually incredible timing. The book came out like the day or two days after Baghdadi was killed. But yeah, it's been interesting. So I had thought initially that they would have a successor named with you know within a very short amount of time, um, just as after Bin Laden was killed, you know everyone knew that Zawahri was going to be leading the organization. There was sort of no question about it, and it was you know officially announced. I, I, I can't recall, but not long after. And in this particular case, the organization has released um, you know the name of a of a successor, the Nom de Gur, but they haven't announced the actual identity. So it's sort of an unknown individual. And of course, there's speculation about who the particular person is, um, but the organization hasn't released that identity, which is which is an interesting shift. 
you know, whereas Al Qaeda was has been very clear about the particular leadership and who's in, you know, the the you know who's in different positions within the you know governing councils. ISIS um, is now making obviously an intentional choice not to do that, and you know we've seen other organizations in the aftermath of repeated targeting efforts sort of be a little more um, you know uh, less forthcoming with who the particular uh, leaders are now. Obviously, you know part of it is a survival a survival technique. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what the organization does with that. It hasn't been that long, right? It's only been uh, what since October twenty sixth. So uh, so. You know, just two, just yeah, just two months actually today. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Based on your findings, should policymakers examine terrorist organizations differently before pursuing a leadership decapitation strategy? Yeah, that's the big question. Um, you know, people ask me often, well, if this doesn't work, what do we do? Right? I mean, it's not like anybody is sad to see these terrorist leaders go. Right. These are people that are, you know, have killed a ton and are terrible. So what do we do? That's the hard question. I always say, well, I just look at targeting. <laughs> but um, but my, actually, my next book project that I'm hoping to work on, um, and I actually have a, a, a colleague that I'm, I'm working on this with um, at UGA, Justin Conrad, and we're starting to think about looking at the efficacy of counterterrorism policies more broadly and comparing them to one another. And so our policies that tend to be much more coercive or policies that are more conciliatory, more effective in bringing about the decline of terrorist activity or, you know, organizational weakening in some other capacity. So that's something that I actually really do want to understand, right, are things like full-scale military invasions, which obviously we found have not been very effective, or killing terrorist leaders, or, um, you know, other sort of more, more targeted operations, you know, on the more coercive end, or things that are more conciliatory, like, um, you know, peace negotiations or amnesty agreements or reconciliation, right? Are these more effective or counter ideological messaging? Are these more effective ways of, um, or, or counter financing, right? Um, are these more effective ways of, of uh, weakening or destabilizing a terrorist organization? So ideally, I'd be able to answer those questions, but, um, you know, it's a lot of, uh, that's a, more, more research on the way. <laughs> the, the point you made that these attacks, it's not that they're just not effective, that they can have negative consequences means that if they were just not effective, then the desire to show progress to the public in terms of taking these leaders out w- it wouldn't really matter. But the, the negative effects show that it doesn't just, it's not a net zero, there is some harm. So that maybe should be taken to an account in terms of counterterrorism and larger political goals. Yeah, I think that's the big question, actually. And so if, you know, if, if they do have counterproductive consequences, then obviously it's important for, you know, policymakers to rethink whether this is the right thing to do. I mean, if you're, you know, going to see really high profile retaliatory attacks in the aftermath, or if you're going to see organizations that are adapting and becoming stronger, then I would say this isn't the right strategy. This isn't the right way to go about targeting terrorist organizations. That said, I don't see it likely to be changing. I don't see, and, and, and this is not just the U.S., 
right? The U.S. is certainly not the only country targeting terrorist leaders, right? This is happening all over. The other cases I have, we have, you know, Israel targeting Hamas or, um, you know, the Peruvian authorities targeting um, Shining Path. Obviously, this is true of many other cases. And, and part of the reason why I think these policies resonate so much is because they're, they're, they're observable, right? People see them, they're clear, um, and they make publics feel secure. They make people feel safe, like their governments are doing something to fight terrorism and to help them and to make them feel better. And, and, and people can see that. I mean, if we think about, you know, all the different, um, you know, measures that the government are taking to, you know, try to prevent um, attacks on our homeland, we don't see many of them, right? These are unobservable. But observable things like targeting make people feel secure. And so whether or not they're effective, they fulfill that need for publics. And another, another I think, important point for thinking about the, what the, how the public feels is that, you know, when a terrorist leader is killed, people feel like justice has been done, that, that, that this, this death is, is, is vengeance. Many high-level terrorist attacks you know, you can go and look and people feel like justice has been done. I mean, back to my, um, you know, initial point at the very beginning of this podcast was that, you know, after bin Laden was killed, people were cheering out in front of the White House, you know, not thinking about obviously what the kind of overall effect of this particular um, uh, instance will be in the long run. And, you know, and and I think the, the third point that's important here is that, you know, policymakers, you know, people in office right? They want to do things that are going to look good, right? For their policies, for the overall counterterrorism policies. And so things like getting a really high profile leader, obviously as seen as a, as a huge tactical success, as a victory. And so this is why, I mean, in the aftermath of, you know, most of the high profile leaders of Al Qaeda and ISIS that have been killed, you know, you can go and you can see, People saying a huge success has occurred, right? A fatal or near fatal or really damaging blow to the organization has been done. And, um, and, and that happens every single time. You know, it's, you can go and <laughs> find those statements really easily. So I think for those reasons, you know, this strategy appeals to people. It's visible. It makes people feel safe and makes them feel like justice has been done. That said, if it has these counterproductive consequences, I think it's really important for leaders to be really thoughtful about whether or not this is the right, you know, this is the right strategy. Well, Jenna, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, could you tell us about what you're working on now? Yes. So I actually mentioned it um, <laughs> when I was talking before about, um, you know, looking at counterterrorism policy kind of broadly and trying to get a sense of whether or not, um, you know, more uh, coercive or more conciliatory counterterrorism policies do a better job at bringing about a decline in terrorist activity or terrorist organizations. Um, that's one project. And I'm actually also looking at or planning to start looking at um, organizational factionalization and organizational splintering. And so this is something that comes directly out of leadership targeting. In many of the cases, after really high profile leaders are targeted, a group you know, will experience some uh, 
turmoil uh, or you know uh, disorganization in some way, and groups will factionalize and splinter. And so I'm really interested in the conditions under which groups factionalize, and then the consequences um, of that. So in some cases, some splinter groups become much more radicalized, some become less so, some become or want to become part of legitimate political processes. And so I'm kind of interested in understanding that dynamic a little bit more. Um, so those are my two terrorism-related projects. I also do some work on cybersecurity, but perhaps that's for another day. <laughs> well, best of luck with all of your efforts, and thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Leadership Decapitation, Strategic Targeting of Terrorist Organizations by Janet Jordan is available now from Stanford University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.